This episode is brought to you by Allstate. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings vary and are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello there and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. This is one of our fortnightly podcasts and well, I'm Tom Marvin, tech head on Bike Radar and MBUK and occasionally Cycling Plus as well. Uh, and I'm here with Simon Bromley, who is one of our most esteemed writers. Hello, how's it going? Very good, very good. We, uh, we're we going to talk today on a road bikey topic, which is what is the hardest road cycling sort of race event? Um, before we crack on too much with that, just a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to the Bike Radar podcast on your podcast service. Uh, this means that you'll get a Bike Radar podcast every Monday. Uh, we do these fortnightly chats, we do tech talks where we get pretty geeky, and we do some interviews, and we've got some really good ones lined up in the coming weeks and months. So, Simon, road cycling events, they're pretty gnarly from the start because road cycling is all about sort of the physicality of it, really, isn't it? I mean, mountain biking maybe is a bit more tech, a bit more, you know, big drops and jumps and, and things like that. But road cycling is literally man and machine versus another man or woman and machine. So it's pretty hard. Yeah, that's right. And there's not a lot of, um, you know, obviously most road cyclists would like to say otherwise, but in reality, there's not a lot of skill to it. It really, you know, it's how hard can you turn the pedals mm -hmm. for the distance or the time. So it's all about physicality. And so, yeah, that makes it potentially very, very hard. Um, obviously, you have lots of different types of road racing. You have uh, kind of mass start road races like say the tour de france or one day races and then you also have kind of i think well you know these might be the hardest ones the kind of ultra endurance solo unsupported long distance ones that you know i personally don't do any of them because no. they're kind of crazy but when you start reading about those things and you and you meet some of the people you realize they're on a whole nother level yeah i sort of thought, should we talk through different types of racing from sort of, I would say, the shortest stuff all the way through to those super endurance stuff. So, I mean, it, you start with, obviously, track cycling tends to be, or can be at least, very short distances, whether it's a, you know, a, a sprint in over the course of a, a lap or two. You know, those things are, are very much down to, especially in the sprint ones, absolute strength. Yeah, that's right. And 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 obviously they can be as short as, you know, like a, a, the 200 meter match sprint. As you say, it's only 200 meters long and it lasts seconds. Mm. But if you were to ride one of those, and because obviously you're riding fixed gear bikes, you know, you have to get that gear off the line. Mm -hmm. And then you have to, it has to be big enough that you can sprint on it mm -hmm. at a cadence that you can do. But then those cadences, I mean, and, and this, you know, mountain bikers might be used to certain high cadences to a degree, but a lot of road cyclists will say pedal at 90 RPM. Yeah. But, you know, on the track, you're going to be spinning 130 RPM, something yeah. like that. And, and, you know, if anyone wants to go and try and do that kind of cadence uh -huh. at a gear of that size on their turbo or something, it is insane. Pretty high, especially, <laughs> yeah, because you have to set off with that one gear. That's right. It? And, you know, so, so for, you know, for like endurance events, in inverted commas, like the pursuits or something, you know, it's a four-kilometer four race and you have to 
you have to do your your you have to start start in this what is effectively your biggest gear, mm-hmm. sprint off the line, and then go straight into a time trial for four kilometers at you know say whatever t- 120 rpm mm-hmm. at your maximum effort for four, you know it's the these efforts are unlike anything else. Yeah. Um. The and so we're seeing kind of. You know, we're seeing riders who used to be technically sprinters, mm-hmm. like Ed Clancy became a team pursuiter at the end of his career because the race got so fast yeah. that it was no longer really an endurance race. It became a, almost More a sprint. More of a sprint, yeah. You know, like there, if you're in a team pursuit, you're riding so fast, you're essentially riding your own slipstream yeah. as you go around the track. Really? Yeah. Okay. And, <laughs> so, and presumably the people who are maybe very good at those sprints and then went into the, the team pursuits. Would would the best of the sprinters go off first to get the the rest of the team up to speed? Or yeah, so yeah, in a, in a team event, you know, you you would put. I suppose you would put you know your strongest sprinter on the front, but mm-hmm. then obviously you can't drop your your mm-hmm. teammates. So you, you know, you kind of you, your diesels of the team have to be able to keep up with that sprinter as well. And and that's you know that's no mean feat. No mean feat at all. No. <laughs> One of the things I like about track cycling is when you when you see it in the Olympics, it's all so nicely sort of packaged in in the velodrome. Is that you see the full spectrum of of cyclists really? So you know you, you've got your your big German or Russian sprinters yeah. with like thighs the size yeah. of tree, like literally the size of tree trunks, maybe saplings, but tree trunks nonetheless. <laughs> and then you've got you know the the ones who are going out for I don't know how how far they, what's the longest race. Well, you could have, you know, you had there are there's like the the Madison, which mm. is a mass start race, and that that would be slightly longer. I I, I don't know how long it is, but yeah, those those a guys, big spectrum of sizes yeah, exactly. And so you can get a real, yeah, you get a real spectrum across across, and obviously, you, you know, yeah, the, the ones that rely on sort of bigger gear and sprinting, obviously, a, a you know bigger builds, but yeah, you know, Bradley Wiggins won the Tour de France and won Olympic gold on the track, and so there are some athletes who can kind of cross that. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of threshold, I suppose, but it's you know it's getting rarer and rarer because yeah, like you say, the sport's becoming more specialised, um, you know, both on the road and on the track. Mm. So, should we jump out of the velodrome then and have a look at some of the more, I guess, traditional road racing um, races? So, there's obviously the Grand Tours, which last for two, three weeks at a time, but there's plenty of, you know, there's one day races, you know, the Spring Classics, which I think we'll talk about shortly because they're they're nuts if you don't, you know, if you're not seeing too many of them, but. Let's go right down to like crits, for example. So short one, two hour races around a very enclosed short circuit. A lot of sprinting out of every corner. You know, if you get dropped off the back of a corner to get back onto the group, it's pretty hard work. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And and also it's all about positioning as well. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're at the back of the bunch in a crit and they go around a hairpin bend, you know, you've you you you've got such a hard effort to get back to the front. So you've really got to be able to stay up in the first kind of 10, 20 riders. Mm-hmm. And that's not just about how hard you can pedal, because obviously in the bunch it's slightly easier. It's also about how confident you are in knocking elbows with people and your bunch positioning skills and all that sort of thing. And so there's there's kind of a a tactical element. Yeah, there's a tactical element and a, and a kind of risk taking element too. That you know you've got to be willing to be up at the front and and jostle shoulders and and arms and you know risk the crashes with those type. You know all at those kind of. You know, I mean, not anything that I've ever done, but if you're a pro and they're racing crits at 50, 60 kilometers an hour, mm-hmm. that's that's incredibly fast. Yeah. So <laughs> you see the was the Red Hood cricks where they yeah. where they do it on fixed yeah. as well. I mean, that's yeah, even, bunkers. That's so going through corners on a on a track bike which has a fixed gear, and you can't just coast through and you know lift your inside pedal up. Yeah. You've got to be wary about clipping your pedal on the floor, which they often do. I mean, those things are you know crash fests. Aren't yeah. They? You won't catch me racing that. Crits are sort of definitely known as sort of. Like crash central. I've got I've got friends who race, 
you know, crits in, you know, they've, they've done, uh, what is it, Cat 2, Cat 3, yeah, Cat local, 4 local crits. Races, it's literally yeah. just crash after crash after crash. Because, you know, we, we might have sort of said at the stop that you, you probably don't need so much technique when it comes to road cycling compared to maybe mountain biking. But there's definite technique to riding in the bunch, definite technique to be able to take those tight corners and then sprint away from it. Uh, it's, yeah, you wouldn't catch me racing a crit. No, cer- yeah, I mean, certainly... There, there is a spectrum of skill required, and and if you're going, if you want to be a sprinter, you're going to need a lot more mm. bike handling skills than if you want to be a time trialist. Uh, yeah, time trial. That's another sort of um, very different to crit racing in in terms of the style of racing, but in terms of sort of the amount of time. And I think this is obviously going to be quite noticeable across the range of road racing, everything from those you know seconds worth of track racing all the way up to the days and weeks of a transcontinental whatever it is but a, a time trial a, t- a 10 mile time trial half an hour um, 25 if, uh, minutes yeah I would say probably more like you know so the record these days is actually 16 and a half minutes or something like that yeah so um, you know the, people are going faster short and faster and, yeah, short and intense efforts though really yeah. where with I think the thing which gets me about time trialing is you, you have to put down you know, the, there is no coasting available in a time trial because this, when you're not pedaling, you, you're not accelerating, you're not maintaining speed. You know, okay, maybe on a downhill you might be, but generally speaking, it's a solid block of non-stop effort. The other thing with time trialing is that the position of you on the bike isn't conducive to comfort. No, it's not designed for comfort. I, you be, I think, you, you know, if you um, if you ride in it enough, mm. they can be quite comfortable and you get the right saddle. Mm-hmm. They can, it, it's, it's, it's sustainable. That's the word you you know they sort of use, um, but yeah, it's sustainable. It's, it, I mean, that's <laughs> it's you know it, it's a kind of it's a different kind of fun, isn't it? I mean, you know, it, if you in, some people enjoy the effort in yeah. a kind of self-flagellating way, I suppose, um, but it's it's not it's not fun. No. So, but I you know I think that the, the shorter the shorter distances, I wouldn't necessarily say that hard but it is but it is what you make it you know mm-hmm. it's, it's if you if you haven't done much training then yeah you're gonna you're gonna sure. suffer but there's a when you're on form and you've done the training there, there's a certain you know you get that flow don't you, you get mm-hmm. in the zone and because they're kind of short enough yes you, you know you might hit your you know my max heart rate is 195 and yeah. i'll hit that at the end of a of a time trial mm-hmm. hopefully if i get all the effort out but you're there for only only for so, such a short amount of time that it's not too bad but i think the real hard stuff comes in the kind of the ones that aren't necessarily based on distance okay so you get obviously you know the hour record yeah. the famous one on the track uh, but then you know on the road people do 12 hour 24 hour time trials right. and and of course if you if you you know in a in a distance based time trial, the harder you pedal, the faster you go, mm-hmm. the quicker yeah. it ends. But in a time based time trial, it doesn't matter how hard, <laughs> how much faster you ride, you still have to do an hour, yeah. twelve you hours, can't just climb twenty four after fifty five minutes. No, like, well, yeah, a good job ex- exactly. And so you're you're you will always have to ride yeah. twenty four hours or an hour or twelve hours. And so there's something mentally very hard about that. Mm. Well, I think one of our um, previous bike radar, bike, bike radar editors, um, Jeff Jones, had a had a, an international twenty four hour or twelve hour time trial record at one point. Which I mean, it's mind boggling. How far? How far can one ride 
in 24 hours? Well, the the, the current the current world record, uh, and this this one this is an outdoor record, is 896 kilometers. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, and that's uh, that was set by an Austrian guy called Christoph Strasser in okay. 2015. He also holds the indoor record. Um, so obviously on a velodrome, that's yeah. 941.87 kilometers. 900, nearly <laughs> a thousand kilometers. Yeah, yeah. So uh, at, you know, and yeah, I'm sure someone will comment on this saying, "Well, he should have done it on a recumbent, and he would have gone much further." But but there's a separate record for that, yeah, obviously. So we, you know, we're talking about upright bicycles, and um, that's bonkers for. It, it is absolutely incredible, and you know. I, I can't, you know, it, it's one of those things that you, I can't even imagine, mm. you know. So I, I've done 24-hour mountain bike races, which are, I mean, I mean, they're hard work. And they're hard work, not only physically, because you're pedaling for quite a long time and a fair distance, unless you're like me, in which case you're actually not very good at them. <laughs> they're also internally boring. Doing like an eight mile lap yeah. over and over again is, is is pretty dull. I imagine doing a two hundred and fifty meter lap, absolutely for nigh on a thousand kilometers. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's and and also you've got to then hold the line. Yeah. Well, you know, when you're getting tired, you've got to stay upright. You've got to go. You know, when riding a velodrome, it's not the same as just riding a straight line yeah. down the road. You know, you have to ride the bank differently yeah. to how you ride the straight. I mean, yeah, I, I can't. As you say, the boredom. I mean, you know, if anyone's done an hour on the turbo, mm-hmm. they know, <laughs> you know, you'll know how boring it can be yeah. when you're just riding inside with nothing to kind of, you know, this, this no stimulation. I, no stimulation. This isn't like maybe they pipe some tunes in or something. Possibly. I mean, it's not a spectator sport, is it? Either? It's not a spectator sport. No, and so. Yeah, nine as as we said, nine hundred and forty one point eight seven kilometers is the indoor record, uh, and it's just incredible. The, the big question is obviously if you were having your dream dinner party where you could invite anyone, would you invite him or not? No, is probably, some... probably not. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> probably not. I mean, you know, like it's 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 great. It's a it's a really great record, um, but it, I I don't think it has the kind of I don't think it's as interesting mm-hmm. as, as say, the ones that are, you know, the, the transcontinental mm-hmm. um, or the say, uh, you, the race across America, yeah, for yeah. example. Actually, funnily enough, I, I think, yeah, so Christoph Strasser is also the current record holder for the race across America. Okay, that's potentially, maybe he's so, back on the dinner table. Yeah, again, maybe, maybe, he, maybe if we were going to talk about that. Yeah. But, you know, I don't, I'm not necessarily so interested in the 24-hour track record, but the race across America, I think, is a more interesting... So what, what is this, you know, obviously it's a race that goes across America? Yes, that's cool. right, coast to coast. So west to the east coast, yeah. it's around 4,800 kilometres. So that film is, what, five days? Seven days. Seven days. Seven days, days 15 hours. <laughs> Seven days, 15 hours, 56 minutes. And, and that works out at, a, at an average speed of 26.43 kilometres an hour. That's not bad. Which is not bad, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, to cross a continent. And it's an unsupported uh-huh. solo time trial. And ah, it's unsupported. Completely unsupported. Right. Is there, there's a team version of the race, though, isn't there? There are, yeah. So okay. there are different There are different categories, I believe. You know, you can enter it as a team. Okay. So I he's done it even harder, then. This is, yeah, this is the kind of the pure... The pure race, per okay. se. Um, but, yeah, the leaders apparently tend to sleep on average one and a half hours a day. Okay. <laughs> Like having a newborn, I'd have thought. Well, 
Yeah, but then we so... also cycling <laughs> nigh on twenty miles an hour. Average. Yeah, so if you could, yeah, if you can sleep, yeah, if you also had a newborn and you're also riding <laughs> four thousand eight hundred kilometers in in that week as well, something like that. But I think you know those those are the really those are the really crazy ones. Again, mm-hmm. the, you know the, the transcontinental race is similar. It's around four thousand kilometers. Mm-hmm. That one's got around forty thousand meters of climbing. Really, as well. Um, and and notably, uh, this year's event was won by a woman for the first time, Fiona Kolbinger. Cool. I think if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And um, yeah, she won that in ten days, two hours and forty eight minutes, which yeah, not bad. Yeah, yeah that's fairly <laughs> impressive. Yeah, we did a, a podcast recently, or Mildred, one of our colleagues, did with Emily Chapel. That's right. Yeah. So she was the fastest woman in 2016. Um, so that was a, yeah. So if you're interested in hearing more about the continental. Uh, race, you should definitely check out that podcast because mm. she had some fascinating insights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was genuinely, I, I'm going to put it out there. I think that was the best podcast bike rider has ever done. Until this one. Until this one. <laughs> <laughs> it was genuinely, though, like fascinating because the, the, I guess the psychology, you know, we, we're talking more about the physicality of doing these long events, but the psychology and, and the, the mental fortitude needed to continue to pedal. You know, I've pedaled long, long ways before or for days on end. But I'm stopping, you know, after six, seven hours because, frankly, I'm a bit bored. Yeah, and I th- and I think when you know when you reach that kind of level of tiredness, it becomes a completely different thing. You know, we've all, as you say, we've all been on long rides, and and we all know that you kind of have highs and lows, and you know, various various things can happen. You know, you get a little bit low on sugar, and you, you start feeling bad, and and the kind of having that mental fortitude to kind of pick yourself up through you know, getting a puncture or, you know, just feeling, not feeling so good on a climb and a material to keep going and nonstop. It's that, I think that's the kind of the tough, the the really tough part of it. And, you know, and I think we'll probably come back on to, like you said, the spring classics and mm-hmm. Tour de France, but where these kind of unsupported races really kind of earn their stripes as, you know, some of the hardest races in road cycling is, is that the fact that they're kind of nonstop mm-hmm. and they're unsupported and you have to motivate yourself. You know, you're not racing against, you know, a, a guy who's or a lady who's next to you. Yeah. You know, you're out on your own for most of it and, and, and you have to rely, you can only really rely on yourself and the thoughts inside your head. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, as you say, truly extraordinary people, really. How, what I think, I guess, is a shame in some ways, you know, like if... The, you know, the pros who we read about all the time, whether it's, I don't know, Geraint Thomas or Froome or whoever it is, you know, these are big household names who do incredible things on the bike, you know, like to race a Grand Tour is no mean feat. But why, why is the average person on the street not heard of Emily Chapel or this, you know, this dude who rides a thousand K in a day on a track yeah so i think in in a way i think these kind of events sort of evolved out of what the tour de france and those other events used to be Mm -hmm. you know back in you know the early 1900s when you know pre-world war one sort of time well yes you know and also just to kind of around so the longest ever um the longest ever tour de france stage was in the 1919 tour de france so you can imagine the state of the roads around europe and Mm -hmm. france then um so the longest ever stage was 482 kilometers and each of the 15 stages in that tour de france were over 300 kilometers in, in length and obviously back then you know there wouldn't have been the same level of professionalism uh, no. As there is now, so you know, and and the bikes certainly weren't mm-hmm. 
S-Works Venges or no. Cannondale System 6s. They would have been, you know, steel tubing with... You know, or I mean, you can't you can't even imagine. Yeah, one gear, fixed yeah. fixed gear, and and so. I mean, you know, I, I, it used to be an ultra endurance event, and it yeah. was created as an ultra endurance event, mm-hmm. and and but obviously, you know, as it becomes more and more professionalized, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily get easier. much easier because you know there's that great Greg LeMond quote that it never gets easier; you just go faster. Mm-hmm. And that's true, of course. Like, if any one of us tried to step into the Tour de France for a day, we'd be dropped instantly and you'd be out of the race. Like, there's no question about it. And for the guys who can just about, you know, for the guys who want to win that, mm-hmm. you know, they're kind of, as you say, like Garrett Thomas, Chris Room, they're peak athletes on the kind of cutting edge of it. Mm-hmm. And I suppose the reason we hear about them and not the other people is because of, there's a much bigger media circus around yeah, one course, yeah. and not the other. Yeah. But... It's should should there be a bigger media circus though around? Or do, I mean, I, I I can't speak obviously for you know the, these people who do the transcontinental or or whatever it is. Maybe they don't. Do you think it's more of a a self? I, I, I don't know if this is the right way to say it or, or the right thing to say or not. But do you, th- do you think they want the same? Do you think there's more of an element of of self proving there than there is the 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 quest for fame and and millions of dollars? Yeah, probably. I th- I think yeah. I, th- I think I think I think I would agree with you that it, if you know if you're entering the transcontinental or the race across America, a lot of those things are you know you, if the, there's there's not necessarily much prize money for mm. winning. Sometimes there's none, and they're open to the public. They're open to the public. It, it is really about individuals kind of riding against themselves. It's not the kind of spirit of competition isn't as strong in it. And, you know, I mean, I maybe, it's, maybe it is a circular thing, you know, yeah. chicken and egg, egg and chicken. You know, maybe if there was a huge amount of media interest and, and coverage of the transcontinental, it would attract more... Absolutely. I, I, yeah, I think that's that's probably absolutely true. And, and I think, you know, for a lot, for certainly for a long time, you know, bicycles have not been seen as a kind of ultra-endurance... Mm-hmm. Machine, and I don't think the general public really—it's it, kind of so far outside of the imagination, isn't it? That maybe you know, like it—it it doesn't probably doesn't attract much marketing spend from mm-hmm. bicycle companies because how many people are going to buy an ultra endurance bicycle? Mm-hmm. It you know, and I know obviously there's there's a there's you could argue the same thing that how many people are going to buy a Tour de France bike, but I think the market is slightly bigger. Yeah. Um, so it it's kind of in that space, but I but I agree. You know, if you if you look at the, the feats that these people are achieving, they're certainly worthy of mm-hmm. much more attention than they're getting. Yeah. Well, let's move on to those that do get a lot of attention then, and that's the pro peloton. Um, whether it's the Grand Tour or the Spring Classics, you know, these are you know as professional sports people as you know your top tennis players, your top footballers. You know, this is. This is not like a hobby sport for them. This is a full-time career. And that in itself, to get to the point where you're racing a pro tour or whatever it is, you have to be not only driven to be a world tour cyclist, but you have to have that incredibly small percentile of, of physiology to be able to do that as well. Yeah, that's right. You know, the, the kind of guys who are racing the Tour de France are the, you know, the the literal top one percent of mm-hmm. of the world, or even perhaps even less, and as you say, it takes an incredible amount of talent and dedication and all of the, you know to even even make the start line mm-hmm. of a race like the Tour de France or the Giro d'Italia. Uh, you know it. 
speeds have gone up and and yes there's more support than ever before and you know they have nutritionists mm-hmm. and cooks and and masseurs and and a, you know a team car giving them spare wheels and things like that but but at the end of the day when they get on the bike at the start line they have to power it themselves and yeah. they all have to keep with keep up with everyone else so it it's still an incredibly hard event you, you know and 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 I think you know there's as you say, it's it, you know it's it's a kind of career and a job, and I think the life of a professional cyclist is still it's not glamorous. It's not a glamorous life, you know. A lot of the hotels, you know, as anyone who's stayed in a cheap hotel in France will know, they're not always that great. And you know, Chris, your Chris Froons, your Garant Thomases, they get allocated hotels by the race organisers. They don't get to okay. choose five star hotels. You know, there was a big controversy a, a few years ago when Team Sky brought a motorhome to the Giro d'Italia for one of their riders to try and avoid this problem of having rubbish hotels. And everyone kicked off and said, oh, you know, you're ruining the sport. You can't do this. It, you know, it's not fair on everyone else. And so they had to kind of sell the motorhome. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, and but there's a, you know, I can kind of I can kind of see both sides of the story. I can yeah. see why they wanted to do that. And I can also see why there was a bit of a backlash. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's not necessarily a glamorous life. You know, Geraint Thomas famously broke his pelvis a few years ago in, in the opening week of the Tour de France and rode on mm. and finished the race with a broken pelvis. It's pretty nails. You know, you, it's a cliche, right? But you see footballers go down pretending they've been hurt. And, you know, as I know soon as it, they've got it, the free it, kick, they're exactly. running it's, around it's, again. And it, yeah, it's, yeah. obviously it's part of the game and that's just how they do it. And But obviously for a cyclist, they fall off their bike, they might they break a bone rip off their their clothing and their skin and things like that the first thing that everyone does is they put them back on the bike yeah, yeah. <laughs> speaking of the of the grand tours and you know there's many multi-day races um you know all over the world but the, the three main ones is obviously well the tour de france is the most famous one yeah uh the giro d'italia in italy and the vuelta Espana in, in, in spain now the tour might have the biggest fanfare about it, the most press coverage, but am I right in thinking that the Vuelta is arguably tougher, steeper, hotter? So, yeah, steeper climbs, obviously very, very hot. And if you're not the type of person who is kind of physiologically adapted to that, you're going to find it incredibly hard. Mm -hmm. So, yes, arguably a tougher race in, in terms of some of the terrain and the weather, but... But then, you know, maybe the Tour de France is very hard because of obviously who turns up as well. You know, the Vuelta unfortunately sits kind of after the Tour de France, and and so the field isn't always as strong. Mm-hmm. Giro d'Italia, on the other hand, often held at the start of the year, usually still snow on top of yeah. a lot of the mountains, and you know, having to kind of cope with that difference between riding in the valley and then riding up to a snow-top mountain in Lycra yeah. <laughs> and then having to descend off that snow-top mountain. newspaper down your shirt. Yeah, having to descend off that snow-top mountain, you know, on rim brakes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and obviously, you know, now they can use disc brakes, but a lot of them mm-hmm. haven't moved on to that yet. But, um, but the conditions that a cyclist, as you say, would have to experience in, in these races can range from... You know, I mean, we saw at the Tour de France last year, it, it, there, one of the stages got cancelled because of a yeah. freak hailstorm. And landslide. And, and a landslide, that's right. And and, and so, yes, in, in the Vuelta, they, you know, you can experience 40-degree heat. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there have been, quite often you hear stories about people melting melting the glue on their tubular tyres. Yeah. You know, these are, these are kind of conditions under which, you know, normally you might think it would be a smart idea to cancel races. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But 
you know, it's a professional sport. The show must go on, and and quite unusually, it, it does. And you know, there have been moves to kind of scale that back, and there are now kind of you know more safety protocols. But but nevertheless, like the conditions, these guys have to you know riding in a peloton of 140 people in the rain mm-hmm. is incredibly dangerous. Yeah, yeah. We're talking, you know, again about about skills and racing a Grand Tour is not just a one day race; it's a three day, a three week race. So again, tactics come into play. And you've got team orders, you've got statisticians and all that sort of stuff behind you. But there's a lot of tactics. And again, you know, descending off an Alp at 60 mile an hour. Yeah, there's a lot of even there more. Is a and, lot and it, of skill. Yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of skill, and but also <coughs> being able to do it when you're tired. Mm. I think you know that's that's kind of part. Of, that's really one of the key things is that you know it's we some of you know a lot of people may have been to the mountains and and cut you know we've climbed the mountain and then descended from a mountain but to do it when you're sort of you know on one day when you're fresh is one thing but mm-hmm. to do it at the end of a three week race yeah when you're tired 150k into the ride yeah is a is a completely different story yeah. and and and, it, and you and to do it you know often these these stages will have back to back mountains so you have to make sure you can eat enough mm-hmm. to keep fueling these efforts it, it really, it really, really is an extraordinary effort, and you know, I, I mean, I don't know if there aren't there, are, I can't think of anything equivalent in in other sports. That, you know, that you would have these back to back. It's really difficult yeah. to think of what else kind I mean, of compares to it. You don't, you wouldn't have back to back marathon running races for three weeks. People would think that was bonkers. Certainly not many. I mean, you get the occasional nutter who goes and does yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Not Eddie an organised, or something, but it, not like the you pinnacle know, of any. Exactly. The pinnacle of this sport is the Tour de France. Yes. The, as you say, that I, you know, maybe there's some niche sports that we don't really follow or know about. But if you look at the broad spectrum of of big sports, yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe like America's Cup type sailing events. Yes, true. But I mean, again, not many people do them. Their coverage is fairly limited, and you know. Yeah, so so they're really you know they're they're kind of uh, they're, they're they're still despite all the kind of professionalization of the sport they're still a real throwback to that sort of you know early early days kind of exploring mm-hmm. mentality when it was about ultra endurance. So yeah. I, I you know it, I think it, it would be unfair to sort of say that you know because Geraint Thomas doesn't have to make his own dinner mm-hmm. it's no longer mm-hmm. an ultra endurance event. Yeah. Like if any of us went to try and ride the Tour de France route. Yeah. You know, it's it's they average as you say 21 stages over over 3 weeks. You only get two rest days and the average distance is around 3,500 kilometers. Right. So, if anyone thinks it isn't that hard, then all you have to do is, you know, get the route book from one Jog of the previous them, years yeah, yeah, and yeah. we can, you know, we can all go have a go at it <laughs> and see how long it takes us. And you know, and if you think, well, you know, they have a peloton, they get to ride fast. Well, you know, we can all get a group of our friends and we can go yeah. try and ride it. Like I think well anyone who anyone who was to try and ride it would, would very yeah. quickly find out that it certainly wasn't easy. I'll be in the team car. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll hand some bottles out. <laughs> you can hand the coat yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> pretty pretty good at that. Um let, let's hit these um these one day classics then because um they are in terms of a spectacle you know, the Tour de France is a big spectacle, of course, because there's so many people involved, so many cars, floats, all this sort of stuff. But in terms of like the sort of the romanticized image of gnarly road cycling racing, seeing someone cross the finish line in Roubaix around the track or something absolutely caked in in mud, falling off the bike from pure exhaustion is 
is a pretty cool thing to see in a one-day race. Yeah, and I think, you know, Paris-Roubaix is the kind of iconic one mm. of those northern France, Belgian spring classics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for good reason, it, it, it's kind of, it's been running since 1896. Okay. You know, and they've only only had seven years off mm-hmm. because of, the, you know, the two world wars. Soft. So, <laughs> um, but it's sort of around 260 kilometers long, and it's usually raced at average speeds of between 43 and 45 kilometers an hour. Okay, so they're fast so they and are long. raced incredibly fast. Yeah, and you know, the, yeah, it's it's you know, it's only one day, mm-hmm. so you don't have to do it the next day. But then that means no one holds anything back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's full gas. Yeah. And everyone gives everything. And because these races are so prestigious, you know, if you win a Paris-Roubaix, that makes your career. Yeah. You know, you'll never have to buy a drink in France again. Mm. People are willing to take a lot of risks. Yeah. You know, and when they hit the famous cobblestone sections like the, the Arenberg, Arenberg Trench, you know, they'll be, they'll be riding 70k an hour. Mm. <laughs> so it, it's not, you know, it, the, the cobbles themselves are dangerous. Yeah. But... Anyone who's kind of watched the race for a long time will know that it's actually the bits leading up to the cobbles. Okay, that is even faster because, because everyone wants to everyone wants themselves. to be yeah exactly everyone wants to be at the front. You know, the one thing that every team director in the car will say to their rider is get to the front, get to the front, get to the front. But if everyone's trying to get to the front, yeah, there's not enough space on the road. So. Yeah. so it, it really it's, it's bonkers. I mean, there's you know there's some there's some great quotes like you know I mean. I, most of them have a lot of swear words in mm-hmm. them. So this is a family podcast, so we won't say those. But Chris Boardman had a really nice one, and it, he said, it's a circus, and I don't want to be one of the clowns. Yeah. Okay. Pretty mad, pretty mad things. One of the things that interested me about them when we were sort of reading, reading the notes is that, you know, obviously with the tour, what you don't see on TV really is the first half, two-thirds, which can be pretty... pretty. Everyone's just cruising around waiting for the main event, which maybe it's the last climb or... Or the sprint towards the end, or whatever it is. But with, um, like you say, everyone needs to be at the front. So, spring classics, you don't set off and cruise for 10, 20, 30, 40, or, you know, for 260k races, 100k. People go nuts because they want to get in the break, right? Yeah, they know that when it comes down to it, if they're in the main peloton, then they, they won't be able to get to the front because, you know, they won't have a team to drag them up to the mm-hmm. front. You know, maybe they're racing in a smaller team. So a way of getting ahead is to get in the day's breakaway. Mm-hmm. So, and, of, and, and and in recent years, we've had a few people who have gone in the early breakaway mm-hmm. and won the race. Mm-hmm. And so now we're in a kind of period where everyone's thinking, well, if I get in the early breakaway, you know, I'll, have, I'll be in with a chance mm-hmm. because when the big teams catch us up later... You know, I'll be in that front group and yeah. I'll be in with a chance for the win. But then, of course, if everyone's trying to get in the breakaway, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> then no one can get in the breakaway because you're just, everyone's just riding fast. That's not a break. If everyone's trying to get in the breakaway, you're just a peloton. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, we've seen the cobbles in Paris Bay don't actually start until kind of 100 kilometers into the race or something. Mm-hmm. But that that first section on, on kind of paved roads is just seems to get faster and faster mm-hmm. and harder and harder yeah. as everyone tries to get into the breakaway so yeah. it, it's just it's uh, yeah like you said you'd think well you know that first section it's all along flat roads mm-hmm. you know you just sit in the bunch it'll be a be a nice cruise but mm-hmm. actually it's it really isn't yeah. you know like in a grand tour as you say you might get four or five you know maybe 10 people going out in an early breakaway mm-hmm. the peloton will let those people go and then they'll kind of both groups 
will ride at a kind of reasonable tempo yeah. and they'll both kind of sit there with the gap as it is because they both know there's no point us all killing ourselves now. Mm-hmm. We'll kill ourselves at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll let this, the peloton lets that little breakaway have a certain amount of minutes. It's kind of polite, a gentleman's it's, agreement. Yeah, because, you know, because no one wants to be racing full gas all the time because it's not possible. Yeah. And yeah, obviously doesn't, that doesn't happen every day, but, you know, and it certainly happens less these days, I suppose. But that is a kind of pattern for the for the Grand Tours that, you know, exists on, on a lot of days. But on a, on a spring classic, mm-hmm. that'll never happen, really. It's most of the time, if the race lulls, someone thinks that's their opportunity. Yeah. To get in the break, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the spring classics are going to be starting, you know, relatively soon. So, you know, if, if you haven't watched the spring classics in the past, you know, it's a, you know, but you like watching the Grand Tours, then you know, get your Eurosport subscription out and you know, or check yeah. out Bike Radar for yeah. a guide to watching the spring tours. That's right. Yeah, good little plug there. Um, but do you know they are genuinely exciting to watch? Because they of are. That. The racing yeah. is as good as it kind of gets, almost, almost. <laughs> because I've got one more thing that I cyclocross okay it's a bit weird isn't it well it's got it's got bendy handlebars so i'm counting it as road now cyclocross really you know they're kind of like crits but off-road yes um so there's both the the physical like sprint strength um hour-long bursts of of pure you know guts and determination but also i watched some a a friend of mine put a clip on instagram of his uh, cross race at the weekend looks well hard yeah, essentially, if you if you look at someone's heart rate graph from a cross race, it tends to be obviously you know they start on the start line mm-hmm. and then they immediately go up to their max heart rate mm-hmm. and then it just stays there <laughs> <laughs> for the whole race. So you, you know, don't turn up to a cross race unless you if you've got a heart condition. You're not going to sit in the pack for a bit, are you? <laughs> no, well, there is you know this, that's the thing because there isn't really there's no peloton mm-hmm. in a cross race, so to speak. It, it's too it gets really strung out and and obviously skill comes into it a lot yeah. more. So people with fitness and skill can can quite easily ride off from someone who doesn't have fitness and skill, especially yeah. if the course is very muddy. Yeah. So. It's inc- it can be incredibly hard, but it's very good fun to watch. It, un- unlike sort of road cycling, you know, the cyclocross takes place almost in a kind of enclosed yeah. stadium-like kind of place. So, you know, if you, if you, you can hop over to Belgium, it's mm. really good fun. You can get your chips and mayonnaise. Brilliant. And maybe even maybe even a beer, Woof. and you can watch you can watch the cyclocross races. They go around a little field or yeah. you know, something like that, and and yeah. But the but it, I wouldn't suggest riding one unless you really yeah. like pain. <laughs> the thing I really like about cross is um, well, it's not the thing I, I enjoy watching it, but what really impresses me about it is um, Mathieu van der Poel, mm. who really is I think must be. We weren't going to talk about individual races here, but I think it, it stands to reason that he is one of the most all round incredible. Cyclist, mountain bike world cup aiming for the olympics you got is what world championship cross racer all this sort of stuff and manages to you know the spring classics the one day races he's, he's got to be a grand tour contender one day as well maybe not a contender for the overall but perhaps for the green jersey i suppose mm-hmm. if he takes over kind of peter sagan's mantle but yeah i mean he's a real phenomenon i think he's kind of if his race record for cross this year is absolutely extraordinary yeah. i mean he's won you know, almost every race he's entered. Mm-hmm. And and as you say, yeah, he's going for mountain bike gold in the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And he's already having a glittering road career. He yeah. won one of the most incredible editions that of the Amstel, yes. Amstel Gold Race in 2019, dragging a small group up to the front group, which contained former world champion Michal Kwiatkowski, yeah. Julian Alaphilippe, who obviously spent so many days in the yellow jersey at the Tour de France this year. And... 
another rider who I can't remember, but because there were so many stars and he dragged this whole group up to them and then out sprinted them. It was just unbelievable. And and yeah, what a a superstar. Yeah, in phenomenal bit of cycling. So he, okay, so let's move on. I'm going to put you on the spot, Simon. You have the opportunity for six months to be a pro cyclist and you can, but you can only compete in one type of, of road or cross cycling. Like what, what do you think would be like either the most fun or the the most unpleasant six months possible of racing? Uh that's that's a that's a really good question. And I and I wonder if, you know, my kind of this is kind of coloured by my preferences. I think, you know, it, yeah, if I if I had a choice and I could get anything, it would be be very, very interesting to be a, a road racer who did the spring classics. Okay. You know, I I think to excel at those takes an incredible mixture of physical ability, mm-hmm. kind of balls, mm-hmm. bike handling skills, experience as well. You know, mm-hmm. you've got to know the roads. And and if I, you know, if I had those things, yeah. which I don't, <laughs> so I don't know who's offering me this. <laughs> it's a magical thing. Yeah, okay, okay. But if I, yeah, if I had all of those things, I think that would that would be pretty incredible. You know, to win a to win a Paris Roubaix. Yeah, I mean, you'd be a happy man. Oh, what a race! Yeah. What a race. Yeah, it really is. It's something special. You know, the, obviously the tour is amazing mm-hmm. and, and, you know, to win a win a grand tour or something like that would be mm-hmm. amazing. But a, a, a Paris-Roubaix, I tell you what, I'd really like to win a wet Paris-Roubaix. Yeah. We haven't had a wet Paris-Roubaix in something ridiculous like 10 years. Really? And, and I'm, you know, fingers crossed this year. Sorry, any professional cyclists who are listening and we'll have to race. But fingers crossed we get a wet Paris-Roubaix this year. Um because it really is, a, it's it's a really special race. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. And final thought: What is then the hardest road cycling event in your eyes? I think it was gonna, it's gonna have to be an ultra distance cycling one. So it's gonna be something like the transcontinental or the race across America. I mean, obviously, I've not done any of them, <laughs> and I don't intend to. So I won't be able to, I won't be able to make. Uh, you can uh, cast your professional judgment. Over <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll say the transcontinental because obviously that has. 40,000 meters of climbing in it as well. So <laughs> quite quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, exactly. That's that's a that's a big 10 days out. Yeah. Very good. Okay, well, there we go. That is what we think is the world's hardest road cycling discipline, transcontinental winner and one day spring classics racer Simon Romney has <laughs> passed on his thoughts on that. Um, we hope you've uh, in- enjoyed this. Don't forget to subscribe to the Bike Rider podcast so you don't miss any of our podcasts which come out every week. And yeah, thank you, Simon. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bye.